I would rather have 20 great pieces that are factual, they are rich, and they are decent size than 500 pieces of fluff. Welcome to the B2B Lead Gen Podcast, your weekly audio masterclass on converting leads to revenue. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot. Let's do this. My guest today is Juliette Van Ruyen. She is an SEO specialist at VR Squared with 15 years experience in both client-side and agency environments in London and Cape Town. Specializing in SEO, she has uh, strong skills in content marketing, analytics, social media, and paid search. Uh, She works in extremely competitive industries, and she creates global SEO strategies that cover 50-plus regions and 10-plus languages. And she also solves a lot of uh, technical site issues affecting uh, key page performance. Juliet, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Eric. So how did you wind up in SEO? It was like so many of us in SEO, uh, certainly those of us who started a while ago, it was a complete accident. Um, I originally started off as a developer um, and my company that I was working for, the first company I went to work for as a developer, I they were forming an SEO team. Now, I'm originally from South Africa. So in Cape Town, SEO back in 2005, 2006, wasn't really telling anyone I'd heard about, but it sounded really interesting. So I thought, well, you know, I, I kind of know what I'm doing here. Let me let me try something a little different. And especially given that I was used to working with code, um, over time I've kind of naturally transitioned towards the more technical uh, side of SEO where you, being able to utilize code and understanding how it all works is a massive asset. So short answer, it was an accident. Long answer is. Well, it screws up all my next questions because I thought you were Dutch from your name. Uh, m- no, uh, uh, married into an Afrikaans family. Is that an Afrikaans I'm, name? Yeah. So my husband's surname is Afrikaans. I am horribly English. Okay. Because I thought you were part of like the Dutch SEO mafia. Oh, you mean like uh, guys like Arno Hellemans and those guys? Yeah, yeah, and the 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 folks from Yoast. Yes, um, I Arno and I are good friends, but uh, I'm afraid I'm not that closely connected to the rest of the Dutch SEO mafia. Although I do quite like the name, and I think they'd quite enjoy that. Got it. So, look, I have a ton of practical tech, technical SEO questions I want to ask you, starting with internal linking. Right. How do you get it right? Um, so get, getting it right being making sure that you have the cleanest, uh, you have the cleanest um, move through the site, that you're, you're not sending people to 404 pages, you're sending people directly to the place that they need to go. This, the key point to start with is your main navigation section. A lot of people think about it, they, they either have something that's too short, it's just got the top level pages, but doesn't actually help people to get into the meat of their site. And other people have, go to the other extreme and they have too many links. They, they kind of overwhelm their audience with, with, with links. So when we look at linking from, from a SEO perspective only, you tend to veer towards, well, let's have all the links there because it's good 
to have to have that linking there. But good user experience combined with SEO means that you need to find a midpoint. You need to make sure that all your key pages are included in the main navigation, things that people are naturally interested in. But also you need to keep coming back to it because you, if you're link, particularly if you're linking to pages that may, for an e-commerce site, go out of stock or categories that may change names, often you will update a lot of things, but you'll forget to update your, your navigation. So what will happen is you will then start to create all these redirect chains as you move through the site. So the user might not kind of realize at first that it's happening, but each redirect that you add is just slowing things down a little bit. So it does sort of drag down. One of the big things that really helps to, to make sure that you're getting it right on an ongoing basis is to crawl your own sites. Now you often call competitors to see what they're doing, but this is where it's quite important to run crawlers on your own sites, especially if, you, if you're doing migrations or you're doing significant site updates. It, it's really important to make sure that you, you run, you see things through the eyes of a bot, the same way that Google would. So you're making sure that users are taken care of, but you're also making sure that Google's going to find what they need. What's the easiest way to crawl your own site? So easiest way is to use a site crawler. Uh, so Screaming Frog has been one that I've been using for probably around a decade. Um, there's Sitebulb, which is a relatively new one, but I, well, I say relative, less than a decade. Um, I found them very useful in terms of the types of reporting. They're, they've got a quite an intuitive interface if you're not used to kind of really getting into meat and, sort of meat and bones of it. Um, there's also Deepcrawl, which is an, uh, an online sort of in the cloud site, uh, which is, they also have an incredible SEO team and their technical SEO team is amazing. So if you, if you work with Deepcrawl as, a tool, as an online tool there, they've got some amazing support there for you. Um, ScreenFrog, Screen which is the first one I referenced, is very much a desktop tool. You run it, you kind of do it, you do it all yourself and you kind of bring it all back. They're updating a lot in terms of how you see the technical setup of your site. Sitebulb is great for helping you identify kind of groups of issues. Deepcrawl is great, if, particularly if you've got enterprise level sites. So uh, one of the companies I did a lot of work with was eBay and they use Deepcrawl because the to try and crawl a massive site like any of the eBay domains using ScreenFrog is just quite difficult. Whereas Deepcrawl is great for enterprise level sites and, and kind of really getting into the nuts and bolts of it there. For smaller sites, less than a thousand pages, uh, what should you be looking for in your Screaming Frog reports? What, what, what would you analyze to know whether or not you're getting your internal linking right? So first thing I would do is actually not what you see in there. It's um, an integration. So Screaming Frog integrates with your Google Search Console as well as your Google Analytics. Now, the, the, the downfall of crawlers and something that many of them try to get over is a crawler can only find pages to which there are links on the site. It can't crawl pages that, for which there are no links. And I'm, I'm including things like whether it's sitemaps, whether they're included in, in navigation. If, it, if there are no links, it, it's just not going to know the pages there. It's going to be a blank spot. But if you integrate your, your search console, search console can often tell you, well, actually, guys, here is a list of pages that you, you're not linking to, but that we in uh, that Google has seen and is, is present within your Google Search Console. So there's there's a, 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 an ability to integrate that directly together to, to, to give you that full picture. But if you if you want to look at it, you're gonna be looking for response codes. So you're gonna be looking at for your 404 response codes and anything that's not a 200 or a 303, 200 or a 300 are generally the, the sort of accepted 200, I don't know whether to, sort of go into sort of response codes. I don't know if 
you you know about them or the audience knows about them. I don't want to kind of teach people stuff they already know. Yeah, no, that's fine. We don't have to get too deep into that. Um, let me give you a scenario. Yeah. So if you had a WordPress blog at a top-level domain, yourdomain.com. Yeah. And a Shopify store at a subdomain of that top-level domain, store.yourdomain.com. Yeah. And you wanted to attract inbound links to the blog and use that link authority to lift the product pages at the Shopify store, what's the best way to track progress? So first one would be looking at the traffic flow. So look, uh, reviewing your Google Analytics and seeing how the traffic is flowing. So you're using links to, to lift the pages. The intent, therefore, being for those pages to rank. We would then see SEO traffic flowing into those blog pages. We would then want to monitor how those pages link through to the product pages and how the traffic in Google Analytics shows that flow through from the, the ranking blog pages through to the product pages and how that then helps those pages start to see more traffic, not just more traffic, but rankings of their own. So then you're going to go in Google Analytics into behavior, site content, all pages. You're going to shift over to the navigation view and yes. look at who's coming through that page to the other page. Obviously, you'd have to have your Google Analytics set up with a filtered view of the domain and the subdomain. Yes. In that yes. environment, you know, how could you set up Screaming Frog to analyze both the domain and the subdomain at the same time, or would it automatically? It should automatically do it. Um, assuming that you have set up your site, so assuming you have an XML sitemap in place, and um, a lot of the, so you mentioned Yoast, one of the things is that automatically generates an XML sitemap for you um, is, I mean, there are there are a number of other plugins, but since you had mentioned Yoast, it's one of the things that they do do is making sure you've got an XML sitemap and the XML sitemap includes both the main domain, the blog, and the shop all in one sitemap, at which point you would point Screaming Frog at your sitemap and tell it to crawl through all of that. So but how would you do that if the e-commerce store is on another server? If it's on another server, it shouldn't make a difference. It just... It, it, how how would you tell Yoast to uh, include the site from the other server on in the sitemap because my understanding is Yoast is going to generate that sitemap from the WordPress site. Well, that's where you can, if, if they're generated that way, then the solution to that is a sitemap index where it lists all your different sitemaps. So you then have a blog sitemap, an image sitemap, a, a, a normal, normal sitemap and a shop sitemap. So that within, in, so basically you're, you're then just creating a tree which says here are the individual sitemaps. Here is the linking between them. And you create that in Yoast or with another tool? Uh, I'd have to confirm that Yoast does a um, does use a site does create a sitemap index. I know a number of tools that do create them. Otherwise, the option is to create them manually and upload them yourself. Are you not a, a Yoast user? Uh, I I have used Yoast, but it's not not for a little while because a number of the sites well. None of the sites I, use, I work on currently are WordPress sites. So unfortunately, there's, there's not as much opportunity for me to have a chance to work with, with the plugin recently. What are, what are most of, uh, what's the infrastructure that most of the sites you're working on are using? So um, a lot of the sites I'm using at the moment are on Magento. So um, they're, they're set up as obviously e-commerce sites um, 
for a large uh, tobacco brand. So that, that's the majority of my focus at the moment. Let's get back to this uh, internal linking question because I want to yes. close the loop on, on this question and uh, try to understand um, how to get it right. So, so in this scenario with the blog and the Shopify store, let's yes. say you've got a limited number of product pages. I don't know, a dozen, right? Yeah. And you're constant, and what you're trying to do is lift the rank of the search ranking of those product pages in Google search by um, transferring all the link authority you're getting from blog posts over to those pages. And you're constantly you know, introducing new blog posts every week, you know, this aspect of the topic, that aspect of the topic, so many different keywords. How do you make sure that it's working and that you link to the right place internally? Because I know in addition to linking out to the product pages, it's also a good idea to link to other internal uh, blog posts. Yes, absolutely. When, when, you're, when you're addressing an aspect of a topic that you have already addressed in previous blog posts, and a lot of time you can take a, you can take a particular topic and you can, you can dissect it into a, a dozen different aspects. Each of those should be interrelated because you're, you're, you may catch people with a particular set of keywords on that blog post which are interested in the adjacent topics as well as in the product. So it's just making sure that, yes, we're linking to it, but when we talk about passing that link authority, I'm more thinking about the, the, the link authority driving the traffic, driving because passing the actual link value itself, yes, by linking to it um, internally, you, you are passing some value. But without, I mean, unless you're actively redirecting, you're not sending the entire value across. You're you're building up the blog posts, and the blog posts are in turn lifting everything else. Um, I think that the big thing about the about linking to product pages is the the likelihood that it can go out of stock. So linking to category pages and product pages helps to resolve that. So you, you want to make sure that if you're, and for instance, when a product goes out of stock or when it is discontinued or there is a significant change, that you don't just redirect that page to the new one. You actually go back to the pages that were linking to this now out of stock or discontinued product, and you then update to the most appropriate new product that you can send people to. Got it. Let me give you another scenario. So, you know, there's a lot of industry-specific sort of vertically-oriented e-commerce providers that um, uh, deal with small businesses. Uh, I know it's popular in the wine industry and in other specialty niches. There are these sort of companies that the winemaker can go to. They give them an e-commerce site. Um, you know, the e-commerce site is at a domain. It's it's a park. I don't know if it's a park and point or how quite it's integrated, but it it, it's not at the um, e-commerce company's domain. It's at the um, uh, winemaker's domain. Um, if the e-commerce company is hosting a number of different winemakers on the same server or on the same platform, and even if it is or, uh, somehow integrated at a new domain, uh, is there anything there that would cause, that would... Um, interfere with this scenario of lifting the rank of the product or category page against a blog post, bringing in, you know, link authority, could it somehow not work or would it somehow have a rising tide on all boats that are hosted by that service? So let's say, you know, the company makes a Chardonnay 
And uh, they they ha- they are linked to a product page. It's a Chardonnay. It's a their domain, but it's hosted by the e-commerce provider. Uh, and that e-commerce provider is selling Chardonnays from other brands as well. Is there any likelihood or any chance that those links are going to lift the Chardonnay pages that it's not linking to as well because they're on the same platform? No, that that's very unlikely. If you think about large hosting providers, I'm, I I realize you're, you're talking very specifically about uh, niche specific. Uh, providers, but if you think about the wider ones, uh, GoDaddy, the, the amount of different uh, different businesses in the same line of work that they do, they, there is, should be no impact. The the way the the only way I can see an impact coming in is from an external factor, which would be if, for instance, you have these these blogs all linking to each other, it could look like they are interrelated, and, and the fact that they're all hosted together could give that that stronger link. So that that would be one way, but without actively linking to one another or all getting links from exactly the same source over and over and over again, it's unlikely that work by one site would benefit another site to which it is not linking and to which it is just affiliated by its it, the value of its hosting. I mean, there, there are a number of companies, like you said, that do provide niche hosting. They provide e-commerce services. They provide niche hosting. They... It, it, Functionally, I think Google can understand that these are separate entities, even if there are elements of commonality here. Talk to us for a second about the proper implementation of schema. And is there an easy way that a non-technical SEO can optimize their schema? So there are, so in terms of implementation, there, there are a number of different ways to do it. I would say probably best there is a an app the schema uh, schema app um i will grab you the link for that um basically there are a number of people that will help test it but in terms of implementation it depends on how you what what you have available to you if you've got if you're able to utilize something um like gtm uh, i believe a couple of people i know have utilized gtm to be able to implement schema a little bit more effectively when they're not well, able that's to google tag manager right that's google yeah. tag Sorry. manager google tag manager right. yes okay so I, I believe that so you are able to do that if you're not able to actually get into the code. But this is something where if you're a, if you're not a technical person, I would be working on the assumption that you would have a developer to do a lot of the technical build for you. And this is something where you'd work very closely with your developer to say, this is what I want to mark up. This is what I want to be standard. Now, um, if we're specifically talking to, to WordPress, there are plugins that enable you to say sort of schema uh, to, to, to put schema into the site. But it, it all depends on which platform you're working on or whether you're working sort of on a, not a static site, but one that's not maybe WordPress or Magento. How about some tips for small business owners, entrepreneurs, and non-technical SEOs who want to hire a developer? Where should they find them? What questions should they ask? How do you get someone good? So the, the, honestly, the best way to find someone good is to reach out to other people who are doing so, who are your connections in the industry. Everybody knows someone else who's doing what they do. And you can also reach out. If, you, if you're if you looking for a developer and you have, say, an SEO, you can, you can speak to this SEO about who else they're working with. For me, word of mouth recommendations are, without a doubt, the, the best way for me to, to find resources, whether it is a developer, whether it's another SEO, whatever it is, the, the people that you know are going to give you a good recommendation because there's no reason for, for them to give you a bad recommendation unless they're actively trying to harm your business, which wouldn't make any sense. Um, there, I know there are a lot of sites like Fiverr and stuff where people advertise development services. 
those are, are quite hit and miss. A, a number of these sort of non non referral type sites, um, Guru, they, they they can be really really good. And if you are going to use a site like that, you really want to get stuck into the reviews and make sure that you are very clear about their person the person's last history. But again, I word of mouth is always how I've gotten developers um, specifically because I think development is it, it can be so easy to go wrong. And having a developer you trust is, to me, intrinsic to having a good online business. And I, I recognize that many small businesses can't afford sort of really high-end developers, but there are a lot of good developers who work with specifically WordPress and they work with smaller businesses and they're not kind of out of reach of everyone, but they make sure that instead of you having to sit up there till three o'clock in the morning, trying to work out what small thing has gone wrong on your website, they can take a look at it and say, this is what we're seeing. We've seen it on other clients. WordPress has made an update. It's 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 messing with your with your template. That's what's happened. Whereas you may not, as a professional, recognize that. And the other side of it is having professionals to do what they do best frees you up to do what you do best and to to actually sell your products. Cornerstone content, keyword cannibalization, and to follow or not to follow with Juliet Van Royen. When we return, stay with us. We're talking to SEO specialist Juliet Van Royen from VR Squared about technical search engine optimization. Juliet, when you're hired to SEO an existing site with, say, a thousand or, or, or more pages, where do you typically start? So a little bit like I said earlier, I start with a crawl. I, I, I audit the site like it's a competitor and work out what what shape the site is in from a technical standpoint, what we're looking at from a linking perspective, and then what content is present on the page. From there, the second part of that is understanding what the business objectives are. When they've, when they've hired me on as an SEO, when I started to take on an SEO project, one of the key things to me is to understand what is it you want to use SEO to achieve for your business? Because a lot of people just think, oh, we'll go and SEO something. But SEO is part of any marketing channel you need to understand what the point is at the end of the day. Do you want to educate your clients? Is the whole point of this to sell products? Is it to get people aware of your brand? What is it that you want to achieve? And from there, matching your current state to what you want to achieve and working out what bits are missing in that journey. So do you not have any content? Do you not have a blog? Is your technical setup really, really poor? And, it, and even though you've got amazing content, no one's able to find it because they're not able to navigate there. Or worse, bots aren't able to effectively make their way through your site to find the end point you want them to reach. Now you're working with pretty high-end clients, but what are some of the common scenarios that you see uh, when you're first coming into new projects? Um, uh, broken links. Um, it's it's one of the things that, that's present no matter how big or small a client is that I'm working on. Almost inevitably, there will be something broken about their uh, about their links because uh, they they people make changes on a constant basis to their websites and often don't forget to update that website to reflect the new the new reality. So that that that's a big one. The other one is um, a lack of content uh, on not just on a blog, but actually on their product pages. At the end of the day, I mean, we, 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 we spoke just now about wanting product pages to, 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 to increase their ranking and to improve. And, linking, and ensuring your internal linking is good, 
but you do also need to have some level of content on those pages to help Google understand what those pages are about. I mean, you don't have to put in pages and pages of content into a product page because you do want people to buy, not just read, but you need to have something there. So, um, you know, I get these emails on a daily basis from people who want to write for my blog. And, uh, you know, when I first started, I used to, you know, respond and say, hey, great. And I'd get these blog posts that were just, you know, they really didn't say anything. Like they would be 800 words of, well, they were grammatically correct and the spelling was accurate, but there was no, they're there. I mean, there was no new information. It was just keyword mumbo jumbo. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it was beyond, it was in a state of disrepair. Like it wasn't like I could edit it, make it work, it wasn't going to work. So now I just don't respond to those altogether. How do you improve web page quality, right? If you're, if you're handed with a crappy site with a ton of keyword rich blog posts that say absolutely nothing, what do you do? So firstly, I catalog what we've got. So yes, we, we know we've got a bunch of keyword research. Uh, we've got a bunch of keyword research that's been done. Someone has gone, great, we have these 30 keywords. Let's put out 30 blog posts at each target, one of these keywords. And what I do is pull, is pull them together thematically. So say, well, these are all on the, generally on the same topic. These are on the same topic. These are on the same topic. From there, start to read through them. So I don't obviously don't read every single page because, I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm faced with hundreds, thousands of pages of blogs that, but what I can do is pull out the core elements and say, this actually doesn't say anything. This is out of date. This was published five years ago. It doesn't really do anything. And I consolidate. I, I would rather have 20 great pieces that are factual, they are rich, and they are decent size than 500 pieces of fluff. Now, it, it's something that it, it's really important to to not kind of do content for the sake of doing content. And I know in the past I have been guilty of that where Google said content is king. So we all went out and went absolutely nuts creating content. And I think what we're having to do now is reel that back in and say, yes, we've got content, but like you said, it doesn't actually say anything. It's fact, well, it's, it's fact poor. And it's also, it doesn't seem to have any goal to it. So it, it just exists for the sake of existing. It doesn't go, well, actually we want this, we want the site to sell products. So how does this particular piece of content or this group of content be pulled down and say, how does that lead someone who lands on the site towards buying a piece of our products? That what is it, what is the aim of the piece? And what is how is it fitting into our plan? It seems pretty straightforward if you're doing e-commerce, but if what you're trying to do is establish yourself as a thought leader in a consulting space or as knowledgeable on a certain topic, it seems less straightforward. It wouldn't be so easy to decide which of those legacy posts to delete. Um, perhaps they may not be related directly to one of the primary service offerings that a B2B provider sells, but they may be ancillary. And so having that type of knowledge on the site, they may think, oh, well, if someone is having this specific problem, they may not know that what they really need is the service I offer. So I'll keep this out there as a way for them to find me. 
So have you ever been in that sort of a situation where it's a little bit more esoteric? And if so, how did you decide which ones to keep and lose and how to categorize the, the posts or pages? I have actually, I've, I've, very, I've done that a couple of times where it's not been for any commerce site, where it's been very, very informational, educational. Firstly, I've started with, are they getting any traffic? If, if they're older than a year or even older than six months and they've got no traffic at all, firstly, is it, is it because the, the subject matter is, is, is not appropriate or is it because it's not been linked correctly? There, there are great pieces which have never received traction because they've just never been properly linked. Google hasn't really found them. They haven't really seen how they integrate into structure and therefore they've added no value in and of itself. Once the linking is appropriate, you can then say, well, great, this is now providing significant value. Fantastic. But typically the first thing I'll look at is, is it getting any traffic? Secondly, how many pieces do we have that are similar in nature? Do we have 15 pieces that are all covering one particular subtype of law? Now, law is typically seen as a bit of a, bit of a boring industry, but it's, it's really not because when people go looking for a legal site, they have a very specific question. Now, it may be that we look at the piece of look at the piece of content, it's not really done well, but all it needs is a slight restructure, and then it will be appropriate for a query. So you've got to work out for, for that piece in that situation, what question is that piece of content designed to answer? At the end of the day, that's what we use search engines for, is to answer the questions that we have. So how is it is it just, well, my company's great, I'm a thought leader, I'm amazing, or is it here here is here is your challenge. Here is how I meet your challenge. It, it, it's, it's about how do you frame it? And also, if you've got 15 pieces about the same very small area, do you need 15 pieces? Or can you consolidate them and take the really important parts of each one and consolidate them into sort of five pieces? And that's where you would work with someone like a copy editor who would come along and say, okay, we have 15 pieces. We need them to be five. We need you to read through it take out the best bits and make it into a cohesive whole. And how in that situation do you deal with um, not orphaning links? So we, well, basically what I do is I, any, any pages that are going to be consolidated, firstly, I'd, I'd create a big catalog of all the content. I would then be very careful about, about recording what needs to go, what needs to stay, what, and where it's going to. From there, it will also have what links in what internal links are present on that site so that when you go, okay, this page is going to be removed and it's going to be, the content's going to be placed into this page that then updates to say, are there links on this page already to the same pages or actually here's one that's missing. We need to add that in. So you, you have five contents with, because if you're topping out the very, very same topic on all these pages or very, very similar topics, what you'll find is they most, most of them will have, links to the same pages anyway, because they've, they've almost been built as a, a, a spoked wheel around these, the, the, the sort of end points. So they will have very likely got a lot of commonality, a lot of overlap in terms of what internal linking they have. And then that, that can be slightly like shaved down without losing any value. So years ago, I interviewed um, Leo Laporte who's a tech journalist. He's one of the first podcasters. And um, I, it was posted by whoever edits his Wikipedia page uh, to the links there. So I have a link from his Wikipedia page back to the podcast, which is still on my site, it was recorded over a decade ago. 
and it gets no traffic. Do I keep that or do I, do I, do I lose it because it gets no traffic, but it's got the inbound link? Question is what other than being home for that link, what purpose does that podcast serve for you right now? Um, only that it is available to listeners who, who may want to listen it, to it. And if they do listen to it, they'll associate that bit of reporting with me. And I produce a number of podcasts and maybe they'll find one of my new podcasts. I also uh, do dynamic ad insertion in my library so I can rotate current ads in and out of those old shows. Okay, so it, it does act, being active does serve a purpose to you in, in the long run, both from, from an advertising point of view and also from a listenership point of view. If it's not getting traffic, where would those potential listeners come from? Would it be discovering you, discovering your podcast and kind of going back through your back catalog? Or how would you, how, how would you assume that they would find it? I assume that they would find it through uh, Google search. They would do a search for his name. They would wind up on the Wikipedia page. They would go to the reference links and they would come to it through there, or they would come directly to it searching Leo, Leo, Lepodca Leo Laporte podcast interview or something like that. Which if you, if it's, if this, if the podcast isn't currently getting traffic, doesn't seem like that may be the case. Now you may want to update it. I don't know if, if it's an opportunity for you to maybe interview him again and have this as a, this is the second podcast. And I'm working it on it. I'm, believe me, I'm working on it. That's what I do. So when they get old, I try to do a new interview and put it up at the same link. So what, 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 yeah. So in that case, you'd refresh it. You, you've added some extra content. That's now become much more current. So you don't need to get rid of the page. You can just update it and bring it up. So often Excellent. when I'm dealing with, with, uh, companies that are making time-sensitive statements in their blogs. So they're talking about legislation that's happening at this time. Th they do need to go back every year or two as legislation updates. They they refresh the content, they bring it up, and they, they republish it. It's not that the old content, it, they, they're kind of trying to masquerade the old content. It literally has become updated. It is now new and current. You're so smart. I knew I had to get you on my podcast. <laughs> Maybe someday I can even hire you. Um, okay, talk to me for a minute about keyword cannibalization. How do you discover and manage against keyword cannibalization? So I find, I personally find Search Console to be incredibly valuable for this. Now, um, I've used, I often use a tool called um, SEO Tools for Excel. Um, so what I do is I integrate the API from, uh, from uh, Search Console into that. And I pull out all the keyword rankings and the associated pages. And I then start to look at where we've got duplicates, where we've got multiple languages, and who's, which of the pages has the best ranking. And also, which of the pages do I think should be the one that's ranking? Because often you'll find these errant pages, which you had no intention of ever actually having significant rankings, will be outperforming something, you, something you've done with purpose for reasons that, Sometimes you're not entirely clear about, and sometimes it's, oh, well, it's been around longer, so it's going to be the sort of natural thing. That's, that's a great way to identify where, where you're cannibalizing yourself with pages that don't have the same intent. So maybe you have an old blog that's outranking a product page or a, 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 a category page because it's been around, it's got loads of great content, whereas the, the product or the, the category page may not quite have that same level of content on it. So that's where you, you, you work out, well, actually, this blog page is interfering 
with my ability to get my product page to rank. So what, how do I integrate that into the, in, into the, into the behavior flow? Or do I say, you know what, this, this page is actually causing me problems. Like it's, it's 10 years old, it's getting loads of traffic, but actually it's, it's hampering my, it, it's hampering our conversion journey. So maybe we need to take some of the contents on this page, apply it to the product page and then redirect the blog post. So you go, I've taken this page and you can do it. You will often have large volumes of pages that are all kind of competing for very high level terms. So you, you need to go in there and select for, and the, I mean, you can do this exercise. There, there are a number of, of people who are doing some really smart work in this industry in terms of doing this in an automated way. But for me, I paid, I largely pay attention to the ones I can handle manually and look at the ones that have really high value. You you can do it as an iterative process where you start from the top and you just kind of work your way through it. And over time, you'll start to consolidate your sites. And it doesn't matter how big or small your site is. There are often ways for you to consolidate that you've not considered. And keyword cannibalization is a great signpost to say, guys, you've got a lot here. Work out what you want to be your point and work out how you pull the others together to back that point up. The SEMrush blog does not publish follow links. Um, what is your opinion on this practice to follow or not to follow? Oh, that's a, that, that's a tough one. I think generally people have been quite badly burnt by, by sort of link building and, and especially when Google's come out with some algorithm updates that have, set, that have specifically targeted link building and said, look, you shouldn't you shouldn't be sort of paying for links, and if we feel that you you're you're artificially attempting to influence the the link graph, then this is this is kind of a problem. So a lot of people have as as a risk avoidance mechanism have are just utilized no follow as as a general rule. Um, I think if if you if if I wrote a piece of content and I happen to cite your blog in my content without there being any kind of interaction with me. I would not put in no follow. I wouldn't directly put in follow, but I wouldn't put in no follow because there's there's no it, there's there's no elements of it that that would be sort of untoward. If Google was to literally walk up and say, "How did this happen?" You were able to say, "I wrote a piece. I thought this was really interesting. Great resource. I'm kind of handing it out." I think a lot of people, especially especially large sites, which have a lot of certainly user-generated content and the ability for people to influence what links might be on there, then nofollow no tends to be to be utilized quite quite widely. Let me give you a practical, a practical example. One or the other. Practical example. So mm -hmm. in my podcast, I'm putting up a, a, an article that's going to run on WordPress with the, with the uh, MP3 file that's attached. And um, I'm interviewing... Juliet Van Royen, and don't let this influence your answer, okay? If I link your name to your Twitter ID, am I diluting link authority if I'm trying to use that page to prop up an aligned service page? Well, no. Um, Google will see it as a, it will see it as a resource. It, 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 you're not. I know that there used to be a lot of discussion about, well, you you lose link value, you kind of hemorrhage link value by, by linking out to all these other things. But Google sees them all as resources. I think linking out to a Twitter handle is just acknowledging that th that is a human being that is part of this. It's it's citing a resource. It's not 
you're not going to sort of lose out on value. If you had a hundred links, they were all kind of linking out to, to various different things on the same page. I think you probably, Google would probably look a bit askance at that. But I think generally it, if you're using a, a podcast or a page that has a podcast and elements like that to prop up as a service proposal, the question is why would you not, why are you using that to prop up a service proposal? Why uh, are you using extra content? Are you, what is the, the, the interrelation between those two, those two pages in your general business? Or is it just trying to push as many links as possible to the service proposal? Final question. Um, I want to ask you about knowledge graphs. So I have a knowledge graph. It's got my books in it. It's got my Facebook and LinkedIn in it. I went to my Yoast settings and I put all the, you know, right links in the right places so that I'm publishing schema to tell yes. Google, you know, what my Twitter is and what my YouTube is. But the only thing that shows up in my knowledge graph are those two. And I'm just as active on the other social networks that don't show up. Um, why do you think that is, that the other social networks aren't showing up in my knowledge graph? That is a very good question. A, a lot of what we see in, um, in knowledge graphs seems a little bit um, irregular. So we'll often, Google makes these associations and, and they, they do so in a way that is not always as direct as we would want it to be. So you may be, you may be a, a, a good example of this is, is something that I, I saw on Twitter the other day, which actually made, made me think quite a bit. Someone was looking for SEO of Mars, um, sorry, CEO of Mars. And while Sarah Bird's name came up in the knowledge graph, it was Rand Fishkin's picture that showed up next to it. So there, there was a clear association, like a very clear association between certain profiles and the, the, the way phrases were, were put together. So I, my, my expectation would be that some of your, while you are active on, on all these different profiles, there are some that Google seems to be closer to you, that, that you maybe utilize more, you cite more from your blog, you talk about more, or I, I wouldn't expect it to be the level of activity, although if you completely leave one or other to be completely derelict, I would imagine Google isn't going to really include it because it doesn't see a lot of value. But I'd say Google's looking for the closest links and it may not think that all of them are as equally close. So it's it's selecting based on its understanding of how the different elements of the piece put together say, well, actually, these are the things that we think are most representative of you. Juliet Van Royen, SEO specialist at VR Squared. I appreciate your taking the time to do this. How can listeners get a hold of you? So uh, a great way to do so would be uh, on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Jules Grimm, uh, which, which I've, I've shared. And otherwise, you are welcome to uh, reach out to me through my website. Uh, so vr-squared.com. I, I know I said no more questions, but I have to ask one more because I forgot to ask this one. You have a two-page website. So, you know, you know, there's the story about, you know, the cobbler's children who have the worst shoes. Yes. Why is that? Is that the story there or is it an, an intentional thing where you don't, you got enough business, you don't, you're not looking for more business. Why, why only two pages? 
So we actually have as, as, as much work as, as we can physically take on at the moment, but also a bit like I said earlier in terms of if you want to find a developer, word of mouth, typically uh, when, I, when, I, when we take on work, it's, it's word of mouth. It's, it's generally always referrals through people that we know. And it's not that we don't want to help a lot of people, but we are, we're very careful about the clients we take on and we, we want to help. We want to make sure that the clients we have have the best possible service from us. To master B2B lead generation, you can listen to the first chapter of my new book, The Digital Pivot, for free at digitalpivotbook.com.